0: into the Rhode Island History Podcast. This is Alex as always bringing you another episode uh, and this one is sort of a, a unique episode in a way because it's very contemporary history uh, and we're talking about a political corruption case and a book essentially. The, the guest is Paul Caranchi Uh, who was a town councilman for the city of North Providence and if you recall in the mid-2000s around 2009, 2008, 2010 there was this major corruption case that broke out in North Providence over some people that were uh, accepting bribes for legislation. Now the the whole idea of uh, political corruption in Rhode Island accepting bribes at at the municipal level, it's not something new for the state of Rhode Island right we've heard it a million times we know that it's existed in the highest levels of power in our state as well as our country and also on the lower level but I think it is really unique that not only did Paul participate in helping bring down these three people but as a writer you know writing previously even to this book he felt the need to write it himself to tell the history himself so without further ado here is paul and as always if you like what you hear and you support what i'm doing you support what this podcast is about you want to hear more people then please subscribe to it share and share with your friends your family and whoever and also thank you so much to the bristol historical and preservation society which occupies the old county jail at 48 court street you can learn more about them our very first sponsors by going to www.bhpsri.org and go to the Bristol Historical Preservation Society see what it's all about we're gonna have some members and some people who are a part of that on this show in the future but there's gonna be a slight break uh, until January so this is your last episode for 2021 I really hope you enjoy it without further ado here is Paul Karanchi
1: My name is Paul Carancy, and I am um, currently semi-retired. I uh, uh, have taken to writing books uh, for the most part now, but I do some consulting work with a firm out of Seattle, Washington that provides election equipment and programs to people with disabilities and military and overseas voters so they can vote at home um, without having to go to the polling place, which they can't do, obviously, if they're away. I have served on the town council in North Providence uh, for almost 17 years, got elected for the first time in 1994, and I served um, until the conclusion of the FBI investigation for the most part. Um, And I uh, also served as Rhode Island's Deputy Secretary of State from um, 2007 to 2015. It's
0: so a loaded career. There's a lot of stuff going on there. And it's interesting to hear what you do now, still engaging with um, electoral politics and, and making sure that those are uh, done in a democratic way, a truly democratic yeah. way. Uh, when I invited you to talk on the show, you you wanted to talk about this book called Wired, which is about, uh, well, the subtitle is A Shocking True Story of Political Corruption and the FBI informant who risked everything to expose it. And this is the story of um, part of your time at least on in North Providence's town council, is that right?
1: That's correct, yes. Um, like I say, I was elected in 1994. This um, whole FBI investigation didn't happen until um, 2009, really. It got kicked off. Um, so there was a lot of service in between. Uh, you know, in which I um, would uh, pretty much daily feel the the uh, frustration of having to deal with uh, people who I just uh, believed would not doing what was in the best interest of the townspeople, uh, but rather uh, self-serving. So let's talk about the beginning of this book because
0: it it sort of starts in, it starts in your childhood really, when you are first, um, witnessing and engaging with uh, political characters in North Providence. So how did you get into politics in North Providence and what compelled you yourself to to become a politician?
1: Well, I, I was always interested in the political process. I, um, I never really enjoyed politics per se, but I was interested in the process. I was interested in government service. And even from a young age, um, yeah, I was uh, probably in the uh, seventh or eighth grade when Richard Nixon was president. And um, I started to become cognizant of things like, you know, the Vietnamese war and uh, issues that would certainly involve me as I uh, got a little older. So, um, you know, I started to watch what uh, the politicians were doing in reaction to those uh, crises or events that were happening all around us. And you know Richard Nixon said he had a plan to end the war. Of course, you know he was um, not telling us the truth then. But I was young and naive, and I certainly believed that if uh, if somebody that was running for president or was president was saying something, I had no reason to think that people in, in that capacity lied. So I uh, I supported Nixon because of his um, pr- proposals to end the war, and. Um, as young as I think the seventh or eighth grade, I was out leafleting for him in my neighborhood, and um, of course I live in a predominantly Democratic area in a very Democratic state. Um, well, I shouldn't say Democratic, Democrat state. So um, you know, being uh, someone that was out there working for Richard Nixon, I was way out of the mainstream for uh, North Providence. But um, I just believed he, he had a plan. I believed him when he said he didn't. I, I wanted to support him so we could carry that through. And uh, of course he won. And then he didn't end the war. <laughs> and I, I learned a valuable lesson in politics. But I continued to to be interested in politics at that level, or the political process at that level. So I worked for a number of candidates, uh, acting as a campaign manager for local council people, or just leafleting or stuffing envelopes for... Uh, citywide, statewide candidates, and um, I just enjoyed myself doing it, and I felt like I could make a little difference. But the more I watched those politicians win or lose and how they reacted to both, uh, both winning and losing, um, it became evident to me that I might really enjoy that life. Um, I graduated high school. I I continued to work uh, for candidates throughout high school. And um, when I finally graduated college, I uh, decided I wanted to, actually it was a uh, be, little before I graduated college, decided that I wanted to run for political office. And when I graduated college, um, I continued to work for candidates for a while and then decided to run for a local council seat to, um, to really make a difference. I'm a third generation resident of um, the same village of North Providence. My family doesn't move much. <laughs> so my grandmother immigrated here from Italy. She moved to North Providence. My father stayed here. I stayed here. My son and daughter are now both here, as are my grandchildren. So um, you know we don't move around much. And um, I really loved the town more so then than now. Now I'm you know old, and, and I, I don't like the snow or the weather here anymore, but that aside. Uh, you know, I, I really love the town. I wanted to see it uh, thrive, flourish, and I wanted to see some good things happen in terms of recreational opportunities for the, for the people in town and, um, you know, senior citizens, um, you know, the, the variety of different services that we provide to them. I wanted to see those things expanded. Um, and it seemed to me that some of the uh, local council people just weren't really um, looking at the town with any type of vision. It was more, you know, how can I help you, the individual, get what you want? So if somebody wanted a zoning change, for example, that would have enabled them to build a house on a second lot that they own that was undersized, that might have really um, increased the density of the neighborhood, might have, um, you know, caused increased speeding on the streets or overuse of the schools, that kind of thing. They didn't really look at In my opinion, they didn't look at those long term issues, they simply said okay well you own that piece of land and I don't want to see you have to waste it, so yeah we'll approve the zoning. The planning department worked the same way and the town was just being, uh, again in my opinion, the town was being destroyed by those kind of nuances, those kind of um, special favors that were being done for the select few, because if you didn't know your councilman or you didn't support him, you weren't going to get that same consideration. But those who were in the know and, and uh, supported the right people would get those kind of uh, favors done. Um, in fact, going back um, to our first mayor, Mayor Mancini, um, you know, he was, um, when he would pave a street, You know, hire a paving company to come in and, and pave a street, if you needed your driveway done and you were a friend of his, he would have your driveway done. And the townspeople would pay for that unknowingly in their tax dollars, but, you know, it was just a short driveway, so he didn't see the harm. He was doing it again. It was back in the day when you could do things on a handshake, you know, and and there wasn't uh, the kind of transparency that you have today. So a lot of the things that went on in government in the 70s, you never really found out about, it just Mm -hmm. happened. And, uh, you know, I, I, I saw that as really hurting the town. It was helping that person, but it was hurting the town as a whole because everybody was paying for that in their tax dollars. And if you weren't one of the favored, you didn't get the, the driveway paved. You had to pay for your own, but you were also paying for everybody else's to get that. So I wanted to bring an end to that kind of um, cronyism. And um, I saw the opportunity in uh, you know, 1970s, uh, 80s, rather. Um, and I, I ran for council a few times, but I lived literally right next door to uh, the mayor, Mayor Mancini. And I was running against his council people. So, um, you know, I was in an area where you just couldn't beat the machine and I, I never won. So I lost three times when I ran. Uh, I think in 19, it may be, uh, 78 or 82, 84 and 92. I lost three elections. But I, you know, I always en- enjoyed meeting with people and I continued to campaign. And uh, eventually uh, when Sal Mancini died Uh, He died in office, and um, then a council seat in my district opened up. Someone had to resign. Um, I saw an opportunity, and that was 1994, and I, I won, and from that point, I never looked back. I'd like to think it was because I was a good representative of the people, but in reality, it was probably more because once you won a political seat, unless you did something wrong, people tended to continue to vote for you. Um, so if you committed a crime, you know, you're probably gone, but if you didn't do something like that, even if you weren't that great a representative, they would still vote for you because you you know, had the name recognition, and they got to know you, and unfortunately, that's how politics is. It's who you know, and people vote for the familiar face.
0: Yeah, uh, um, Salvatore Mancini seems to be somebody that is a major political presence in your early career. Oh, yeah. uh, you mentioned him as the, the first mayor, but uh, he exists even before then, before he's elected to mayor. So can you describe a little okay. bit about who who he is? And, you know, of course, you were running against some of his people, and you saw a lot of corruption and in, in the way that he ran things. But it seemed also that he was kind of inspirational in a way, in a weird political way. So if you could talk a little bit more about him.
1: Sure, Uh, Sal was, um, believe it or not, an anti-corruption candidate when he first started. He started um, his first campaign in North Providence in 1962. I was just seven years old. And uh, Michael Costello was the political boss of the town back then. And Sal came in as a reform candidate, put a slate together, and actually beat Costello and a, a bunch of his people and took over control of the town as a reformer. And of course, he was a reformer for, for many years. And, um, and he did a lot of great things for the town. He really did. But he also did those other things that um, you know I think caused harm for the town, like the lack of zoning and planning and all of that, and then doing favors for, for his friends. Um, you know That had a harmful effect. But he controlled everything and um you know back when i was uh, just in junior high school and i wanted to work in the summer um my father suggested that he would go see sal mancini and see if he could get me a job thinking you know maybe something in the town working in a recreation department or public works department or something but i was too young for all of that so um They, uh, Sal said, uh, sure, we'll take care of him. And he ended up hiring me, hiring me in his hardware store. He owned a hardware store right here in town, Ace Hardware. And, um, so he hired me there and, and, you know, it was, it was heavy work for, for someone. I was always a a skinny kid in, in high school. Things have changed dramatically since, but when I was, um, up until I graduated high school, I was only about 160 pounds. And, um, you know, he had me, um, unloading trailer trucks of, you know, 50 and 100 pound bags of cement and grass seed and uh, fertilizer, and things like that. So, you know, one on each shoulder as you were taking them out of the truck, because one bag at a time just didn't go fast enough. And, um, you know, it was all fine. But, you know, I was just a kid. So I worked for about eight weeks of the summer. and, And then I left that job. But that's just the way it was in North Providence. If you wanted anything, you had to go see Sal whether it was a job, whether it was uh, you know something to do with your streets, speeding, speed bumps, stop signs, you name it, you had to go see Sal. No, he was just a councilman at the time because we didn't have a mayor. We had a council president, uh, six other council people, and um, you know, as council president, he just controlled everything. So once he got that kind of power, he kind of picked up where Michael Costello, the guy he defeated, left off. Um, he controlled the planning board, the zoning board, the budget committee, you know, you, every, every board in town, he controlled. So if you wanted anything, he was the guy that would make the yes or no decision. And, um, with that kind of power, he started to, um, gain himself a statewide presence. He became a uh, chairman of the Rhode Island Democrat party. Um, and he was influential in presidential campaigns in the state of Rhode Island, um, So yeah, he he accumulated a significant amount of power, and though, in in his mind, the things he was doing were virtuous and helping people, uh, it's really not the role of Apollo. He was taking on the role of the church, as well as government, um, and trying to help everybody, uh, including the needy. (laughs) I mean, he really did. He helped everybody, but at the expense of those people who didn't know him or, or didn't have the connections. And they were paying the bill through their tax dollars. And I just didn't see it as fair. Um, you know, he could have continued to help people without, you know, in essence, stealing money from the town. Uh, and, and that's what it amounted to. So, um, yeah, he had uh, a tremendous impact on my early life and, and my early political career. And even after he died, uh, the, the long arm of uh, Salmancini extended far beyond the grave. And he still controlled things because his people were still in power. And uh, they continued to do the same things he was doing from their council positions and and school committee positions and whatnot.
0: So, uh, by the time you entered politics, uh, I think you said ninety-four was when I first like. is your first your first win. Um, what were some of the the legislative acts that you were really trying to to work with or to get done?
1: Well, um, I'll go into all of that, but let, let me just back up one minute. I probably should have mentioned this before because it took place before I won, but during a council campaign that um, I think oh, it was nineteen, maybe 80, 84 or 86, um, and it, it was one of the big issues that I was concerned about in town. North Providence had its own municipal landfill. And what that meant to the town was a tremendous savings. Anyone, Any town who didn't have a municipal landfill had to use the services of Rhode Island Central Landfill in Johnston. And the cost was $32 a ton to tip your garbage at that landfill. So add $32 a ton to the collection costs that you paid the hauler to pick up the waste, and it was a significant expense. we had our own landfill, so we could avoid that $32 a ton charge. And because there were only maybe uh, 10 municipal landfills in the entire state, we have 38 municipalities. Um, So about a quarter of them had a landfill and the the, uh, state government realized how essential it was to maintain the integrity of those landfills to help the municipalities. So they passed a state law that prohibited um, out of town waste from being dumped at the North Providence landfill prohibited um, commercial waste, you know, from stores and and businesses to be dumped there. It was reserved only for residential waste, so the town could avoid paying that thirty two dollar a ton fee. But I found out that um, extensive amounts of out of town waste and commercial waste were going into the landfill. And again, if you knew Sal, Sal would authorize, you know, the dumpster that picked up at your particular business to go dump at the landfill or if he had friends that didn't live in town he would say no problem have you know have the truck dump at the landfill so we were getting significant amount of, of illegal waste at the landfill and it was filling up our landfill rather quickly so I have a background in waste management because I, I worked at Rhode Island solid waste management um, so I could I easily identify, the types of trucks that were allowed to go into the landfill and the types that were prohibited. And you probably recall when people, when the waste haulers pick up your garbage at your curbside, they used to have what they called a rear-end loader. You know, they would throw the garbage in the back of the truck and then a compact would, would compress it, compact all the waste so they could keep fitting a lot in there. Uh, whereas a business had to pick up a dumpster And it raised the dumpster over the top of the truck and allowed the garbage to fall in. Those were called top loaders. Very different than than a rear loader. Um, You know, the average guy might not know that, but having the background of waste, I could easily identify the trucks and saw a lot of commercial trucks going into the landfill, top loaders. So I knew what they were doing, and I knew who was calling the shots and controlling it, but I couldn't prove it. So... One day, um, I uh, decided that I would ask a reporter to f- come with me as I followed a truck that was taking commercial waste and followed it into the landfill so that the reporter, his name was Greg Smith, could um, uh, could actually see what was going on. And then he wouldn't have to take my word for it. They could, you know, he could print the story to end the abuse. Mm-hmm. It was a miserable, it was 1984, and it was a miserable cold, bitterly cold day in February. And the reporter had, you know, agreed to to meet me so at like six in the morning so we could start following the truck. Well, he didn't show up, probably because it was so cold. But I decided to follow the truck anyway, and that was a mistake. So I didn't have any experience doing that kind of stuff. And I guess six o'clock in the morning, there's not a lot of cars on the road. So a pair of headlights behind the truck, following him as he weaves in, in and out of side streets. And it was pretty obvious that I was following him. So he stopped the truck and he and he got out and he um he had a club in his hand. And <laughs> he came over to my car window, banging on the window with the club, saying open the window, I'm going to beat your effing brains out. Uh, stop following me. What are you doing? He was really upset. So I I stopped following I got out of there. <laughs> and um, then Right around the same time that I was doing that, um, there was a guy in Providence by the name of Gelato Mastraccio, Sr. And he had a friend, Joseph Olivo of Cranston. And they were involved in a narcotics string in the state's uh, capital city, of Providence. Well, Mastraccio at the time knew that the police were closing in on him through a, a series of informants that he had. And he thought that if he got nabbed, Olivo would probably snitch and and tell of various crimes that the pair committed, including a murder that was committed by Olivo himself at the behest of Mastraccio. So the paranoia got the best of him. And on Valentine's Day, 1984, um, according to police reports now, so this isn't mine, this was actually a police report, and I'm going to read you a quote. He, um, quote, Executed Oliver with a gunshot blast to the head, then with two accomplices, he cut Oliver into pieces with a chainsaw and scattered the remains in Providence dumpsters. Now, Providence is the capital city just outside of North Providence. Well, about a month later, Oliver's shredded torso was unearthed by police detectives who happened to be digging in the North Providence landfill. Wow. So, according to the Providence Journal reports. C.J. Shivers, who was a tremendous investigative reporter, and now works for, um, I think, the New York Times. Um, he wrote, town officials and local engineers began asking a simple question. If the landfill accepted garbage only from the town, how did the contents of the dumpster from Providence, which included all of those remains, end up at the Smithfield Road site? But by the time that story appeared in the paper, it was 11 years later, July twenty fifth, 1995. Mastracchio had already been arrested for the crimes. Um, there was a series of legal actions that forced the closure of the landfill, uh, North Providence landfill. But the bottom line was I was pretty lucky to be alive because I had no idea that was going on. And here I am stopping. I could have been stopping the every guy that was carrying that, that dumpster load of material to the landfill. Who knows? Yeah. Um, And that could have been why the driver was so upset that he was being followed. So, um, you know, corruption became, at that point, you know, something that was pretty personal with me. And I knew what was going on. I just couldn't prove it. And this validated, that that whole story validated all my suspicions. But I still had to prove any allegations that I made. Um, So, anyway, I, I didn't win that election. Uh, but I did win in 1994 after the passing of Sal Mancini, and um, there were a series of things I wanted to do to to try to improve the town, Um, and there was so much going on. Uh, There were, uh, you know, if the council deals with local issues, obviously, we don't have these, you know, sexy statewide type environmental issues or other issues that the legislature deals with, it's localized stuff. So it's a lot of stuff like stop signs and and um, noise from clubs and bars and things like that. But uh, we had a two o'clock closing time in a lot of our bars. And um, every other town, with the exception of three, closed at one o'clock. The city of Providence closed at one o'clock. They used to close at two, but they closed it because of all the problems they were having after one o'clock. They decided to cut it back. So people were leaving Providence bars drunk already and coming to the next town over, ours, already drunk, and going in and having that last call at our bars. So then when they got out of them at 2 o'clock in the morning, they were pretty drunk. They were boisterous. They were loud. Uh, They were getting fights in the parking lots of the establishments. A lot of things going on. Now, because of the lack of zoning that happened all through the Mancini administration and before, we have commercial establishments that have restaurants or nightclubs right next to residential houses Mm -hmm. uh, on main roads. So these things were now a nuisance. You know, when when you're trying to sleep at two o'clock in the morning and there's a fight going on in the parking lot and bottles breaking and motorcycles revving their engine and uh, police sirens coming in and all this stuff. How do you sleep at night? And this would happen every Friday and Saturday night, every Friday and Saturday. And my phone used to ring off the hook because I was the councilman and you got to do something about this. And so I proposed shutting the bars down at one o'clock, pretty logical move. But a lot of the council opposed it. And I, I suspected why, you know, they were probably getting a payoff from the from the club to allow them to keep the license, but I couldn't prove that. But it was things like that that I tried to do. Another, another thing I tried to do was um, we have a, a uh, there was a problem in the state with adult entertainment facilities, um, strip clubs, uh, adult bookstores, and video uh, places, and stuff like that, and North Providence had no language in its statutes that would prevent one of those type facilities from opening up anywhere. Again, lack of zoning. So theoretically, one could have opened up right next to a boys' club, or a church, or a, a you know, elementary school, or, and there was nothing to prohibit it. So I tried to you know, have a little foresight, and I drafted an ordinance that would, you, you can't ban these kind of facilities outright because they're legal you know, businesses, but you can restrict them to certain areas. They call them red zones around town. And that's what I did. I established an ordinance that would um, move all of them to certain parts of town. But the entire council was opposing it. And I couldn't figure out why. This is something that's good for the, the people in town. Why would you oppose this? You know, again, I suspected they were getting paid off, but I couldn't prove it. And this happened with with virtually everything I, I would try to do, um, with the exception of expanded recycling, which nobody opposed. But um, everything else, I would I would find this opposition. So, um, and then they would pass things that would make no sense to me. They would they would pass things. To um, pass an ordinance to approve a drive-through on a, uh, uh, you know, a, a hot dog stand or a, or a Burger King or something that could stay open till two or three in the morning, and you know, I say, well, I'm trying to shut things down at one, and you're approving things to stay open till two or three. You know, if you're that desperate for a hamburger at two or three, something's wrong. <laughs> but you know, they they would they would do this, and they would do it without. A public hearing, they would just, uh, you know, go ahead and pass these things willy nilly, with no regard for how it was going to impact that neighborhood. So um, I I could see a pattern develop, but I really couldn't prove that they were doing anything wrong. The only thing I could prove was that their judgment was flawed. So um, those are the kind of things I faced in the early years, uh, and, and it went on for a number of years. Right up until two thousand nine, so from from nineteen ninety four to two thousand nine, I fought. You know, I'll give you one more example. A councilman, the, the position of town clerk opened up. A town clerk uh, retired, and a councilman proposed his sister as the town clerk. Now, the town clerk keeps the minutes at the council meetings. The town clerk is responsible for writing the council agendas, and. Pretty much anything having to do with the council. I said that's an awful conflict of interest for a councilman to control the person who is providing all the information to the council because if he doesn't want certain information to come before us she could withhold it and if he wanted other information to come before us she could get it. Um, so I, I didn't think it was a good idea plus we had a, another candidate who was superbly uh, equipped to do the job, he was basically doing the same job at the state house for a number of years. They didn't call it town clerk there, but it was the same type work. And uh, he worked for the speaker. I <laughs> said so this guy could. His grandfather was uh, a state senator from Rhode Island, going back to the '30s. So he he had an understanding of the politics. He knew the town because he lived in it, whereas the councilman's sister didn't. Um, it just made eminent sense, but yet they pushed for the councilman's sister. I was alone vote opposing it. And when those councilmen got in trouble later on, sure enough, it was, you know, her that was providing all the information that was coming out, and she controlled what came out and what didn't to protect her brother. But anyway, I fought all of that stuff for a number of years, and then in, uh, 2009, there were two projects that were going on. One of them was um, a um, a stop and shop that they wanted to build right across the street from the high school. And the other was a Lowe's, uh, you know, home goods store that was just down the street from the stop and shop. And the stop and shop project was, um, was uh, laden with, with uh, corruption. And, and you could see it and every step that they took to get it passed. First of all, it was across from the high school. It was on what is considered, even today, the second busiest traveled road in the state of Rhode Island, certainly the most heavily traveled in North Providence. So traffic on certain times of the day and certain days of the week would be backed up for miles where you could, to go from North Providence to Pawtucket down Rinald Spring Avenue, is a four-mile trip that would easily take an hour if you went at the wrong time of day um, for four miles. I mean, You could walk it faster. Um, but they wanted to build a stop and shop that would have access and egress off Middle Spring Avenue, requiring a red light that would further exacerbate the whole traffic thing. Plus, the neighbors behind this property, which used to be a junkyard for, for old buses, um, that had been cleaned up by uh, uh, Department of Environmental Management years earlier, it, it used to be zoned light industrial the neighbors asked the Council to rezone it to residential, hoping that they would build more houses or apartment buildings there. Um, so, and, and they they asked unanimously, they, they wanted that to happen, but yet yeah, the Councilman came up to me and said uh, i'd like you to meet with the developer, I said well why he said because. We want to show you the plan, it's a good plan. I said, I'm happy to meet with him, but I gotta tell you, I'm predisposed not to support it because of the problems it can cause. So we'll just keep an open mind and let's meet. I said, okay. So we sat down with the developer. All the councilman did it at different times. He, this one councilman took all the others in to meet with the developer. Developer's name was Richard Bakari and uh, Churchill Banks is the name of his firm, his construction firm. so he, um, he was developing the stop and shop there, and he shows these beautiful plans, color plans with trees and shrubs and you know, the, the facilities set back off the road and you know, nice walkways and you name it. Of course, on paper, they always make it look beautiful. It doesn't look anything like that when it's actually developed. But um, you know, he shows the plans and he says to me, uh, Yeah, and the neighbors are supportive. I says, The neighbors are supportive. They were you know, ready to lynch us at the council meeting because they wanted this zone residential. Now you're gonna go back to commercial and, and they're supporting it? He said, yeah, they're all supporting it. I said, oh, I'll take a look at it. So I found out later that none of the neighbors were supporting it. In fact, they were leading the opposition to the project. And um, I knew if he lied to me about that, something I could easily check, what else was he lying to me about? So I was not in support of the project. But uh, five of the other councilmen were. And um, it looked like it was going to pass. So I was getting pretty upset over that issue because this was right in smack in the middle of my council district. And I knew people were going to be looking at me to protect their interests. And I couldn't do anything. So um, that was one project. At the same time, there was the lows being built, just you know, probably 100 yards further down Mineral Spring Avenue, same side of the street, again would require another access and egress onto Mineral Spring Avenue, it would have, um, you know, maybe a red light that they would need over there as well. Um, just more to hold up traffic. And I, um, I wasn't looking favorably on that issue. But the developer met with the neighbors and the town officials, several times. And tried to work out all of their concerns. And although I wasn't happy with the outcome, the neighbors were. So I said, okay, uh, if if you're happy with it and, and you're going to be the most impacted by it, I'll go along. I'll support it. And I'll you know, and they asked me if I would continue to watch their backs to make sure that things didn't change at, you know, the dead of night. Um, and I, I agreed to do that. So we were at one meeting of the council. And um, one of the representatives from Lowe's gets up and says, "Oh, we got to move. The, uh, we need an easement on the street, on one of the side streets, and we have to move the retaining wall that we proposed to build closer to the side street." Well, wait a minute. I said the, the side street. They acquired all of the properties on that side of the side street to uh, you know abandon them, knock down the houses, and they said this was going to be a park area with trees and grass, park benches. And then there was going to be a six-foot high stockade fence and arborvitae planted in front of the fence a foot and a half apart. And on the other side of the fence was a 30-foot drop, so there'd be a 30-foot retaining wall, and the fence would be on top of that wall. And then the building would be built 30 feet below at the bottom of the, the uh, retaining wall so that you wouldn't even see the roof of the building from the houses that remained on the other side of the street. So that's what sold the neighbors so okay well now they're moving the retaining wall closer to the street, which is going to eliminate all of that. Um, buffer zone that they proposed would eliminate the trees and the grass and the park benches and they're doing it at a council meeting at which no residents were there because they didn't know it was going to be on the agenda. And they're trying to push it through in one night, And I said well, you can't do this, you can't just change all these plans and the guy from lowes said well yeah i'm just filling in I, this isn't my project the guy who was supposed to be here is sick and i'm just filling in for him so i said okay let's wait a week and have the other guy come back that knows about the project and you know he can explain why this is necessary and the council said oh no absolutely not if we don't pass it tonight they're going to walk i said look they got, they got like 2 million dollars invested in this project already they're not walking if we delay it for a week so we can get the facts no, they'll walk. They'll walk, and they they rammed it through with five, five to two vote. And I was livid. I said, all these residents are going to think I double owed them, and I just changed everything, just like they asked me not to do in the dead of night. And uh, they're going to think I betrayed them. And I came home, and I was, you know, just so upset. And my wife said, you know, maybe it's time to to take some action. So um, we did. We went to the FBI and uh we told them what was going on and they said um we're gonna i forgot one one very important part of the story there was a national league of cities and towns conference and that was in november of 2009 uh i'm sorry november of 2008 because I, I started wearing the wire in January of 2009. So November of 2008, League of Cities and Town Conference. My wife said, why don't you go and, you know, just hang out with the guys, with the other councilmen. And I used to attend the conferences. But I, when I got there, I liked to actually go to the sessions and try to learn you know, what innovative ideas councils in other parts of the country were passing so that I could, you know, maybe bring those ideas back home. The other guys, you know, had been on the council longer than me. And they were just looking at it as an opportunity to have a vacation. So they would like to sightsee. They'd go to a few sessions, but mostly they'd sightsee and they'd, uh, you know, go for drinks and things. So I said to my wife, I'm not going to do that unless you come with me, because I want you to see what, what I'm dealing with. So she did. She came, our expense, we we paid her expenses and, and, um, we had dinner as a group one night at the PF Chang's restaurant in Orlando. And after dinner, we were supposed to go for drinks. And they said, uh, we don't know where we're going to go, so uh, you know, so I'll go back to our rooms, we'll figure it out, we'll give you a call. Well, they never called. <laughs> Everybody else went, but they they kind of left us out. So, but they went to the blue heron in Orlando and they had drinks. And during the course of those drinks, one of the councilmen was at this point of the, of the night, you know, pretty, pretty drunk, not like staggering drunk, but, you know, feeling no pain for sure. And he stood up and, and put his arm around two of the other councilmen and said, um, You think we're going to pass that stop and shop proposal uh, in December? I was really counting on the money for Christmas. Well, another councilman who was there picked up on that. And uh, about a month later, we were talking about it and you're talking about the trip. And he told me what happened at the Blue Heaven restaurant and what was said. Well, that was in my mind, that was the evidence I needed. So when, and um, after this meeting about Lowe's we we did go to the FBI and we told them, you know everything that was going on, including that story. And he said, uh, let me get back to you. I got to run it by my superiors to make sure that this is something they want to get into. And he did. The next day he called me back and he said, uh, yeah, they want to pursue this. Let's meet again. So we met again. And he told me that um, the only way I'd be able to stop this is if I agree to wear a wire. He said, because unless we catch them in the act of, of getting the money and paying it out, you're never going to stop it. It's always going to be speculative. And we can't arrest anybody on speculation. So I thought about it quickly. And then I decided that there really wasn't a choice. My my wife and I had talked about, before we even met with the FBI, what the implications of doing something like this would be in the the state we live in and the town we live in in particular, which is a very high concentration of Italian Americans who frown on people that rat out other people. So we knew that there'd be a chance that I could lose my job as Deputy Secretary of State. There'd be a chance that um, we'd have to move out of state, that old friends that we've had for years might not talk to us anymore. Uh, We we knew all the implications, but we also decided at the end of the day that if we didn't do it, simply to maintain our standard of living by keeping the job and the friendships and everything else we had, um, then we were really no different than they were because they would take in the bribes to enhance their quality of life. So, you know, when you looked at it that way, there was just no choice. We had to do it. So we did. We, we uh, met with them. We agreed to wear the wire. And I started wearing the wire in um, January of 2009 and uh, wore it uh, until May of 2010, roughly 17 months until the first arrest happened. And um, you know, I don't know if you had a chance to look in the book. Uh, there's a picture of the device that I had to carry with me. Um, let me see if I can find the page. Uh, it's, it's page 189. Okay. So, um, you know, it's a, it's a small device that uh, maybe an inch and a half square with a wire and a, 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 an earphone attached. And you could detach the wire if you were meeting someone in person, but if it was a uh, phone conversation, you had to have the wire in, um, in your ear. And that picked up both ends of the conversation. And I wore that, uh, like I say, for the 17 months, but it was very intrusive because um, whenever I met with or spoke to any one of the three councilmen that were the principals involved in this, (coughs) I had to Get permission from the FBI to activate the device uh, because it wasn't always on. I could only activate it when I was in the presence of any one of those three or on the phone with any one of those three. So um, I would have to call Jim Piccavage. He was my uh, FBI handler, and um, he would say, uh, "Yep, go ahead, activate the device." So let's say I got a call from um, one of the councilmen, uh, John Zambirano, and um, I would have to let that call go into voicemail, because I couldn't pick up without activating the device, and I couldn't activate the device without permission. So I'd let it go into voicemail. And he might say, Paul, call me back. OK, so now i got to call the FBI, get permission to activate. When I activated the device, I had to leave a preamble. This is Paul Comanchio. I, I was supposed to use my code name, which was Coupon. Don't ask me why, but the code name was Coupon. Um, so I was supposed to say, this is Coupon. It's um, 5 o'clock on Saturday, uh, July twenty fifth, And I just received a call from John Zamborano. I'm going to, going to call him back now. And then I would have to dial my phone with the device so they could hear the tone of which numbers were being dialed to, to know that I wasn't calling a friend of mine who was going to pretend to be John Zamburano. Mm. Um, And then it might go into his voicemail. And if that was the case, then I had to call back the FBI and say, what do you want me to do? And sometimes he'd say, let the device run for another five minutes and see if he calls you back. If not, then deactivate it. Or he might say, deactivate it and let him call back and go into voicemail and then call me back and we'll activate it again. Um, If I deactivated it, I'm sorry, if if I left it active and I got the call back, uh, then the phone conversation will be recorded, and I would then have to call the FBI and say, okay, I just got off the phone with him, and um, he'd say, deactivate the device, and I'd have to do a post-amble. This is Paul Cavancy. It's Saturday, uh, June 25th, and I just completed the call to John Zamborano and I'm deactivating the device, and then shut it down. Yeah. Uh, So it was all that process just to get a phone call. And sometimes these phone calls were, hey, did you see the Celtics game last night? (laughs) So, but that's the the process I had to go through. So it was very intrusive. It was one night in particular, I was out to dinner with four friends, uh, me and my wife and and two other couples that have been lifelong friends. They're they're in the book as well. And um, we, we just ordered our food and I get a call from one of the councilmen. So I have to excuse myself, leave the building, go back to my car and I'm sitting in the car and sure enough, it went, you know, back and forth like this, where they, they didn't call me. It went into my voicemail. They called the FBI, called him back went into his voicemail, had to leave it running for a while. And well, I got back to the table, everybody was done eating. And how do you explain where you were? I couldn't tell him where I was. So I just had to go to the bathroom guy, sorry, you know, for an hour, <laughs> but you know, that's, that's what I had to do for 17 months. It was just a real overwhelming intrusion. All well, right, yeah. through it. Oh, go ahead. Oh, do you, you want to ask a question?
0: Yeah did you did you have like uh, close calls, close encounters with the people that you were trying to record mm-hmm. when you were with them in person?
1: I certainly did. There was one case in particular. Um, well, go go way, way back to the beginning, back to January of uh, 2019. I'm sorry, of uh, 2009, when I uh, first started wearing the wire. And I had to meet with John Stamborano at a Dunkin' Donuts. And he was going to tell me whether or not they would allow me to be part of the conspiracy with them. Because I had to get the acquiescence of all three council people to become the fourth vote for them. Mm -hmm. See, four votes was the key because the council had seven votes, seven, seven members. So you needed four. To get a majority. They had three just among them. But that meant that every project in which they, they wanted to get a bribe or a kickback, they had to convince a fourth man to go with them. But if I was their fourth, now it's automatic. You don't even have to talk to the other three. So um, there was an advantage to them. Of course, the disadvantage is the more people that know that you're doing something wrong, the more chance there is of the, the word getting out. So they did approve it obviously, and um, this night uh, was the night before the, the council vote to uh, for the Stop and Shop project. And um, it was in February of uh, 2010, uh, February of 2009, rather. And um, we met at Dunkin' Donuts, and uh, he said, when he got in there, I had picked a nice seat. <laughs> the FBI wired me all up, you know, they had, they cut a button off my shirt, and they inserted a uh, camera that looked like a button in the place of the button that was missing attached to the wire that went down into my pants. And then they cut a hole in my pocket to run the wire through the pocket and attach it to the device that was in my pocket. So um, I was all ready and, and I picked a seat that was under a light so that the camera could pick up the uh, the visual with ease. And when he came in, he bought a coffee and uh, said, come on, let's go for a ride. And I'm thinking, oh God, he's going to take us to somewhere and, and they're going to frisk me and they're going to find this thing and I might never come back. And I was really scared. Um, but we got in his car and instead of going for a ride, he, he just said, yeah, you know what, let's talk here. And the first thing he said to me was, you're not recording this, are you? And I said, oh, John, come on. And uh, he laughed and I laughed and, and he continued the conversation. But in that conversation, he spelled out everything they were doing, who who the um, middleman was, or who was paying the bribe, how the payout was going to take place, how much they were getting and how big a piece I was going to get uh, because I came on late. So I was getting a smaller piece than them. Um, like every detail, he spelled it out in explicit detail. And, uh, and then we left. So um, I said to the FBI, when I got back home, there were three agents waiting here. Uh, to, to take the recorder off me and take the uh, camera button and all that stuff. And um, I said to them, you know, I was really nervous. You wanted to go for a ride. What would have happened if we went for a ride and they took me over to the developer's office and he frisked me and found I had the device? He might have killed me. I mean, this guy was fringe mob, you know. And, um, so he might have killed me. He said, no, nah, that would have never happened. We would have stopped you long before that. I said, how are you going to stop me? He said, we had three agents watching you from three different – uh, vantage points, mm. and believe me, if that car left the parking lot, we would have stopped it, broke a tail light, and then comp- impounded the car for having a broken tail light. You would have never gotten beyond, you know, a few yards beyond Dunkin' Donuts. I said, "Well, that's comforting," but I wish they had let me know before that because, you know, I, I had some underwear that were irreversibly stained as a result of that whole uh, whole episode. But um. In any case, uh, that, that was one incident, and, and there were several others along the way. There was one where I actually had a meet with all of the neighbors of this particular stop, And uh, no, it was the Lowe's project. I had to meet with all the neighbors, with the three council people from the district, the, the large councilman and two district councilmen, the mayor and the mayor's chief of staff, and a whole bunch of other people, planning director and zoning director, and it was taking place in the police station. And I thought, they're going to have a metal detector and I'm going to walk in the building and the, my, my thing is going to set off the metal detector and then they're going to make me empty my pockets and they're going to see this recording device with a wire on it. So the agent said, well, take the wire off because you're going to be in person, you won't need it. And if they find a device, just tell them that um, your hard drive on your computer went and the repairman downloaded your hard drive into this. It's an external hard drive and and that's what it is. I said, okay, well, that sounds plausible, but I was still nervous beyond belief. well they they didn't have the metal detector. well, they, they have one, but I didn't have to go through it and um, they never did find it. but uh, you know a lot of incidents like that cause a great deal of stress leading up to you know nothing may have happened in the final analysis, but the the stress beforehand was you know nerve-wracking. Um, and there were several incidents like that that I talk about in the book, but Anyway, we get to um, 2010, and uh, my wife had a conference in Baltimore, and um, I was going to go with her and take a little vacation. It was just like a three or four day conference, and um, she uh, she left for Baltimore. But that day she left for Baltimore, I went to Indiana to help out a congressman. Well, help out a friend who was secretary of state in Indiana, and he was running for Congress. So I went to help him on election day at the polls, you know, just passing out some literature at the polls for him. And, um, and then from there, I flew the next day to Baltimore to meet my wife. So we're in Baltimore that first day. It's fine. I got there, I don't know, maybe about 11 o'clock in the morning and the rest of the day was fine. The next morning we're in bed and um, my phone rings at like six in the morning. And it's one of the other councilmen that was pretty supportive of, of, uh, beating corruption back in north providence with me he didn't know anything about this deal but um you know he worked with on a lot of other projects with me so um he called me and he said paul did you hear the news i said no i'm, I'm away frank what news he said "Well, no, uh, three councilmen just got arrested and then he paused a minute and he said you didn't have anything to do with that did you and i couldn't answer uh yes or no so I, I quickly changed the subject and said how do you know how, how do you know he, they got arrested and he started telling me the story. Well, um, about 15 minutes later, I get a call from the FBI handler and he says, Paul, we just arrested the three councilmen. And I'm thinking why, we, you know, I, I had the two bribes on camera that I had, they had gotten and shared with me, but we were, we were due to get a second collection of that second bribe in a couple of days, you know, three or four days. Why would you arrest them now instead of waiting for that? He said, well, I had my reasons. I can't get into it right now. Uh, I have to get to the arraignment. I said, okay. He said, but I I called you to tell you that if you get, you're probably going to get a lot of calls from various press. Just say no comment. He said, it's going to be fairly obvious that you were the informant by the information. Um, When when there's an arrest that takes place, it can happen in one of two ways. There can be an indictment for us from a grand jury. Or, if no grand jury is sitting at the time, they prepare what's called an information. information, And that's prepared by the prosecution team, and it's signed by a judge. And based on the strength of what's written in that information, it kind of acts like a grand jury indictment in the absence of a grand jury indictment. And they, on the strength of that, they arrest the people. And then when the next grand jury sits, they come out with the indictment that's what happened here. There was no grand jury. So they had the information. And he said, it's going to be fairly obvious by the information that you're the uh, informant, but your name is never used. I was referred to as CS1, confidential uh, source number one. And um, he said, so if you don't confirm it, they're not going to be able to prove it to you. And hopefully they'll keep your name out of the paper. I said, okay, well, it didn't happen because I, I didn't, uh, I got calls from Fox News, from every local station, radio, television, um, you name it. I, 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 the phone never stopped all day. I answered the first few and said, no comment, no comment. <coughs> but after that, I just let it go into voicemail because what's the point of answering and saying no comment? So I just didn't answer. Um, but uh, it, my my name wasn't protected from the paper because... By process of elimination, it was clear it was me. There were seven councilmen, five went on the trip to Florida. So the confidential source was one of those five. Three of them were arrested, and the other one denied it was him. And I was saying no comment. So it was pretty clear that it was me. Mm-hmm. But they, they still had to always say in the paper, um, we believe the informant to be Paul Comancy. They couldn't actually say I was because they couldn't confirm it. Um, But anyway, uh, that that just opened Pandora's box, and and from that point, my life was changed that day, and it's never been the same since. In fact, I was concerned because we were in Baltimore, as I said, and my daughter was using my car while I was away. I have an SUV. Um, So she was using that, and I'm thinking, uh uh-oh, they got arrested. People pretty much know it's me. And my daughter's using my car. What if somebody plants a bomb under my car, hoping to get to me, and she gets hit with it? So I called the FBI, and I told them I was really concerned about that. And they said, don't worry about it. We'll send a team there, and we'll, we'll sweep the house and the cars to make sure everything's okay. And then we told my daughter to, you know, and everybody else that was in my house, my daughter and my, um, my mother-in-law, to go somewhere else and, and not stay here for, until we got back and they did that, um, but about six months after that day, uh, I was in my driveway, and my neighbor was in the driveway, and uh, we have like a common driveway, so we're both talking there, and he said, are you still in the house? I said, no, why? He said, well, a couple of months ago, or several months ago, um, a couple of cars pulled up, four or five guys got out in suits, and they started looking all around the house under the sills and looking at the cars, I thought maybe they were appraisers and you were selling the house. I said, no, I don't know what that was all about, but it wasn't wasn't because we were selling the house. But, you know, just uh, some crazy things like that 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 happened. But uh, yeah, my life was never the same since. My uh, house was vandalized uh, twice that, that uh, summer. Um, my cars were vandalized constantly, seemed every week. Tires were slashed on the cars. Uh, Nails were constantly strewn in the driveway or in the front of my house on the street where we parked the cars. Um, You know, the the car was kicked in. I got dents. I I still drive the same SUV, and I got dents all over it um, from you know from people that come by and kick it in or punched it in or whatever. Um, But that's life in the fast lane. I lost um, a few. Uh, probably three or four friends that had been my friends for 20 years or more, uh, because they were also very close friends of the people that got arrested, and they just stopped talking to me. Um, I, uh, my um, office position as deputy secretary was reorganized. Um, They they, they called it an office reorganization, but mine was the only position reorganized. I lost my state house office. They moved me out to the um, Corporation, the building where the Corporations Division and the Elections Division is a, an old factory building that was rehabbed, but a, a half mile from the State House. Um, my pay was cut $35,000. Um, so, yeah, we, we, um, we took a, a major hit. I was forced to buy um, some uh, camera equipment, you know, and, and get um, um, a monitoring device ADT uh, security for the house. Um, the monitoring equipment for the outside, I had to pay $4,000 out of pocket. Um, We lost the house to foreclosure after I took the pay cut. And it wasn't just the pay cut. I decided also um, when all this happened after the arrest, not to run for re-election. So I lost my council salary, which was $8,000 a year and took a $35,000 pay cut. So I lost $43,000 overnight and, um, you know, try to sustain that hit. So I lost the house to foreclosure. Um, And uh, I couldn't get a job after my term expired as deputy secretary. I had to uh, move out of state. I went to Indiana to get a job.
0: What? um, So, I mean, you mentioned before you decided with your wife that this was the right thing to do. But it seems like, you know, not saying that you wouldn't have made that decision, but it seems like there was a lot of. Um, consequences that happened that like nobody could foresee, you know, like losing friends, losing income. And what was this whole entire thing like for your
1: wife from your wife's perspective? Well, um, she, you know, she was very supportive, obviously, all the way through. It's not something I would have done in a vacuum because I knew the consequences, the potential consequences. And, and we didn't know about losing the French. I mean, we talked about all that beforehand, and we just decided that we had to anyway because we'd be no different than them if we didn't you know if we turned the other way so i could keep my job or my salary or my friendships then why am i different than them right so um you know we knew the potential consequences we we hoped that it wouldn't happen but we knew that the potential was there so when it happened we weren't surprised at all and um you know, she was supportive all the way through. In fact, she was, uh, was helping initially. Um, it got to a point where the FBI asked me not to share information with her anymore because they said the more you tell her, she's gonna become a witness and she might be on the stand for a day or two and you don't wanna put her through that. So just, you know, don't share the information. So I, uh, I stopped telling her what was going on on a day-to-day basis, but she knew what I was doing clearly. Mm -hmm. And when I when I disappeared for an hour at a time, she knew what it was all about, even though I couldn't tell anybody else. Um, But, um, you know, the reporter, Tim White, the investigative reporter with Channel 12, did a uh, a two part, actually like a half hour program on on this back in 2014, I think it was. Um, After the last trial was over, then then I was able to talk about it. And um, He said, uh, you know, at the end of the interview, we asked two questions that were very poignant. The first was, knowing what you know now, would you do it again? Pretty much what you just asked me. Um, And my answer, you know, very quickly was, yes, I'd I'd do it again in a heartbeat if the conditions were the same, meaning if I had a fiduciary responsibility to my constituents. um, And, you know, rather than violate that responsibility, yes, I would do this again. the second question he asked me was, uh, what was the hardest part? Well, I, I, the answer he got, he didn't actually use it on the year, but he um, I don't think he was expecting it. <laughs> um, uh, the hard for me, the hardest part was, and I think for my wife too. We have been, um, we, we've known each other forever. We met when, I'm a year older, so I was six, she was five. And we used to play together as kids. We started dating when I was 13, she was 12. We dated all through high school and college, got married a week or two after I graduated college. So we've been together forever. We've never really been apart for any substantial time, except occasionally if we had work conferences that the other one couldn't attend, you know, we might be apart for three or four days, but it was rare and usually we went to each other's conferences. Um, And then I had to take a job in Indiana. So you know, I, I, I joked about it and said at a, at a time when, when I should have been because at that age I was like 59 years old when this was all over. Said um, at a time when I should have been, we should have been out shopping for uh, matching rocking chairs and denture adhesive. I was 1,700 miles away from home, uh, trying to find an apartment to live in for my job, and um, you know that that separation. Clearly was the hottest part for both of us. The other, the other stuff was a nuisance. It was, you know, a, an intrusion uh, into our daily routine, but it wasn't painful. That, that separation part was painful. Oh,
0: um, yeah. I mean, your your wife is obviously a presence throughout this entire book. Somebody that is the the moral and the physical support for you throughout the whole thing. Um, and as a, as a final question, sort of urging people listening to pick up the book, um, just ask in general, what compelled you to write the book? I mean, why did you decide that this was a worthy story for, for everybody to, to read?
1: Well, um, I, I was by, by the time all of this happened, I was a writer. Uh, I had um, like four other books that had been published, and um, I enjoyed writing um so this seemed like a topic that that was worthy to write about but my motivation more than anything else because i I have so many topics in the queue that i'll I'll never have time to write all the things i want to write about but my motivation for slipping this one in was that i was never able to tell my story my side of the story Uh it was because i i always had to say no comment it was always speculation and a lot of people speculated that I was involved in the conspiracy, and I was cutting a better deal for myself after I got caught by handing everybody else in. Um, and that wasn't the case. Uh, as a matter of fact, I, I lead off in the book with the story about kicking the FBI agent out of my car because I could have walked any I wanted. I had you no, know, no. Most people that do this do something wrong. They get caught, and okay, instead of going to jail for five years, you can go for one if you tell us who else was involved and, and hand us them. That wasn't the case. So they had nothing on me that they could force me to do this. So um, we had a disagreement early on when he asked me if I was taking some notes and I I finally admitted that, yeah, I was. And he started yelling and I just said, you know what, I've had enough, get out, I'm done. You've got you know, the evidence you need. And his boss called me, Jeff Sellette from uh, Boston, uh, the next day and tried to control me back in. And, Initially, I was resistant, but then you know, I finally you know, acquiesced and, and decided to, to finish the job. But um, there was a candidate running for Secretary of State against my boss. And um, during the campaign, he said that I was a high-paid staffer on his staff, that I was corrupt, that I had um, you know, gotten caught. And turned everybody else in to cut a better deal for me, and I couldn't deny it. My boss didn't know if that was the truth. I mean, he assumed it wasn't, but he he didn't know because he wasn't involved in any of this. Um, And he almost lost the election because of it. He won by a percentage point. Um, And I always said, well, you know that that's wrong. People shouldn't think that I did something wrong, and they certainly shouldn't think that the Secretary of State had done anything wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, and this was my chance to clear the air and at least put my version out there. Um, and, and my version is supported by, by factual detail, like a letter I got from the FBI saying that uh, you know I, they had nothing on me. It was something I did uh, for for the sake of cleaning up government corruption. So that's essentially why I wrote it.
0: Oh, it's an extremely compelling story, very well written, um, and as you said, you've written other things, and so uh, thank you so much for coming on this podcast, and you know, I'd love to have you back on in the future to talk about John Gordon or something
1: like that, if you're if you're willing. Absolutely, I, I love talking about that story too, one of my favorites, so um, thank you. It, it's been an absolute pleasure being on. Uh, you go by Alex or Alexander? Oh, it doesn't matter. You can call me, Alex. It's fine. Okay, Alex, it's, it's been a pleasure. And I appreciate what you're
0: doing, too. I, I wish you much success with the podcasts. Thank you so much. Okay. I'll talk soon. Okay. Bye now.